Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by our Director of Spiritual Formation, Marjorie Mott. Okay, tonight's scripture reading is some excerpts from the book of John. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that the so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to the disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. And yet you're going back? On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So from that day on, they plotted to take away his life. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Jesus predicts his death. Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is the word of the Lord. 
So to begin, I actually want to read a poem. This is by Joyce Rep out of the ordinary. And it's a poem she writes about Lazarus's resurrection called Come Out. Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, a friend, dead, buried three days, and he demanded, take the stone away. But Martha, sister of the dead, turned in alarm to her friend. No, you can't do that. He can't come out. He's been in there too long. He stinks. That fearful voice of resistance has echoed through the ages leaving fragments in our souls. You can't find a new life. You've been dead too long. Don't think you can change now. The old message repeats itself to those life-giving parts of us that have died and gone to stinking and need to be raised up. The child in us who succumbed to neglect, the self-esteemed that was choked by fear, the intuition that withered with mistrust, the joy that submitted to anxiety and worry. Many are the names of the dead in ourselves. Many are the risings that need to take place. Jesus stands at the tomb and calls them out, ignoring the loud protest of our inner voice that cries, you can't call that back to life. This Easter, Welcome the inner Lazarus. Let the stone unseal the stinking. Let the risen voice resurrect our deadness and give it an entrance into light. Never before this Lenten season had I, had I realized the impact of this story of Lazarus's resurrection and Jesus' arrest and the, the days leading up to his arrest and his crucifixion. I've always been drawn to the story of Lazarus, especially how he took that moment to, I mean, um, how Jesus took that moment to weep with Mary and Martha, right? But knowing that he was gonna go and bring Lazarus back to life. But I hadn't noticed before where it was in the story, right? What a crucial role it plays that really it is the healing that sets the rest of the week leading to his arrest in motion. It's the final like healing and miracle that sets the Pharisees crazy that where they finally decide, okay, we got to do something about this guy. And they plot and they make a plan. And they say, we're going to kill him. We're going to take his life. In verse six, we, Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick and he stayed two more days where he was before he said, let us go back to Judea. And his disciples warn him. They say, but a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you are going back. We know from scripture, from other stories, right? That Jesus doesn't have to be present to heal somebody. He could have stayed where he was and he could have healed Lazarus. But instead he waited, he let the sickness take Lazarus's life. And when he said, let us go, his disciples were warning him like, are you sure you wanna go back to the place where they 
or wanted to kill you or they tried already to kill you? So from that day on, after Lazarus's resurrection, they plotted to take his life. Chapter 12, verse 17 to 19. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread word. And many people, because they had heard what he, that he had performed this sign, they went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And later Jesus speaks to his disciples, predicting his death. He says, this very reason I came to this hour. How intentional were all of these movements and actions? Any one thing different and it would change the story. Can you imagine the weight on Jesus' shoulders? That decision to heal Lazarus, to bring him back to life. He was the only one that knew what the next days would lead to. He's the only one that knew bringing this man to life would cost his life. And so I imagine him there, pausing, taking a moment to maybe close his eyes and be quiet. Everybody else is wondering, what is he doing? He's, he's right there about to call out, Lazarus, come out. And he's counting the cost. He's considering and surrendering, consciously choosing I will bring Lazarus to life knowing it will cost my life. He entered a dangerous situation. He still chose it. Just to be clear, that phrase, I'll bring Lazarus to life knowing it will cost my life is not from scripture, but I think it is from Christ. This Lazarus story has been following me for weeks um, out of the ordinary. Um, I mean, Evelyn has also been asking for it more. So reading it with her, there's a popular worship song right now um, that we've been singing in the morning, singing it over a community that's about Lazarus and his resurrection. Um, it's just been swirling in my mind. I couldn't not notice. And so spending time last week asking God, God, what is there for me to notice? In that the story keeps coming up, what is there for me? What is there for us, for our community? And I so clearly heard God give those words. I'll bring Lazarus to life knowing it will cost my life. Recognizing that just as Jesus had to spend those shaking wondering prayers of anguish in the garden before he was arrested, saying, not my will, but yours. I think he had a very similar experience then before raising Lazarus. He was there knowing what was to happen and he paused and he chose. And so this is beautiful, right? To know that the surrender and sacrifice, the greatest expression of love that he could give of giving up his own life we know this is beautiful because it wasn't just for Lazarus, but it's for us. And so we know too that he's saying, I'll bring you to life, knowing it will cost my life. So there's beauty, but 
I also feel a little discomfort about that, about this idea of Jesus's death. And I think I'm not alone. I think in this community, we are wondering, we're people that, that try to welcome questions. And so I want to talk briefly about my own discomfort there, about that Jesus, like the word cost, especially for me, I think is, feels a little painful um, discomfort coming from theologies that I was brought up in that no longer seem to fit for me. And so I want to talk briefly about atonement theology. I'm not the theologian in the, in the room, okay? So bear with me. Um, you all know this, but um, just going to talk really brief, briefly. So atonement theology, what it is, is the understanding of why Jesus died and what that has to do with our um, salvation. Scott McKnight, an author and um, writer, says that atonement theories are like golf clubs. You may use some more than others, but they're all useful at certain times. And there's two uh, theories that I want to touch on. Penal substitution and Christus Victor. But there are others. These aren't the only two. And like Scott McKnight says, there's helpful aspects to all of these. And at times in my life, Penal substitution has been very helpful, a very clear black and white of the gospel. These theologies are based on three factors, God, humanity, and sin. And so they get kind of confusing, and they are. They're a little interconnected, and so we can't completely separate them because they're talking about just the same three things. But in all that, let me briefly explain. <laughs> so penal substitution. It is the most popular atonement um, theory in American Western evangelicalism. So if you grew up in an evangelical church or if you've been part of one, you're probably familiar. It's the, the theology that you're probably most familiar about why Jesus died. It was popularized by John Calvin. And briefly, it demands a death as a penalty of sin. Demands Jesus dies in our place and often portrays God as angry or hostile towards sin or perhaps even towards people. Or sometimes there's lighter versions. It's not about anger or the emphasis, but there's still an emphasis on Christ dying because of our behavior, our sin. It's humans who are threatening to put the whole order of the world in chaos, not sin. And so Chris says, Victor takes a different perspective. The word is Latin for Christ the victor. This is actually the first atonement theory. This is that of the early church. It's also that of C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Bonnie Christian, I have her book here, if you would like to look at it later. Um, she writes, in sinning, We've both betrayed God and become victims of evil. One early theologian named Irenaeus explained that God came to earth so he might kill sin, deprive death of its power, and restore life and freedom to all humanity. Christ being victorious over sin, death, and Satan. So the difference is God's fight is against sin and Satan, not against us, not against humanity. 
And this has freed me and um, has been the lifeline, the theology that, that is fitting for me right now. See, when it's against us, and, and I should clarify, penal substitution, it might not always like specifically say that it's against us, but I think that's like the general narrative that people sense and pick up, that it's God against people. And I've heard the phrase, phrases like this of God can't look at us or be with us because of our sin. And that's confused me because I think that makes God sound petty and small. Or perhaps the focus so much on penalty of what is owed I think God sounds a little pathetic and uncreative that he couldn't think of another way. So moving the arrow from us to the side, recognizing it is God defeating sin, Satan, and death. He's no longer small and pathetic and uncreative. He is victorious. He reigns. He is over those things. Jeff Holstgall writes, in the Christus Victor view, the death of Jesus was necessary, not as a payment for de of death for death or the penalty for sin, but as the means by which God, who is life itself, entered into the farthest reaches of the destruction created by sin, death itself so that God could begin renewing creation from that place. Jesus' death is a means of renewing creation. So if you're like me and you wonder, why did Jesus have to die? It's him saying, even there I will go. Even in death and destruction, I will go. He goes there to rescue us, to set us free, to renew creation, and to renew us, to give us life. So that's it for my theology part. And I share this because I want us to be a people who, when we're uncomfortable with something in scripture, we're not afraid to lean in and to ask why. That me actually picking up a theology book when it's not my thing, by the way, this is very accessible, so I highly recommend it, um, has deepened my faith. Even just learning these terms and reading about these theories helps it come into my daily life, my daily faith. So I'm still learning, unlearning, and discovering even as I'm up here trying to explain this stuff that is rather confusing. So if you have more questions about atonement theology, bug Gary, not me. <laughs> he doesn't have all the answers, but he has a lot of them. <laughs> um, but none of us have all of the answers. So, if, so consider, are you uncomfortable with Jesus's death? And why? Is it perhaps the image of God that so often comes with these theories? God as judge, 
Or is it perhaps the emotion attached to God, the anger, the distance? Or is it about your own painful experience with specific churches and their theologies? Or is it about your shame and your sin that makes you uncomfortable? Let us go back to the beauty that Jesus chooses surrender and sacrifice. He chooses to go to death, to give life. That Jesus was slowly journeying to his crucifixion ever since he was born. But this event of Lazarus's resurrection set it all into motion. This is the healing that gets the Pharisees' attention and gets them to start making a plan. I think Jesus could have decided to buy himself more time, to lay low, to not go back to Judea, to hide. But he didn't. In all of that, he moves forward toward Lazarus. I imagine them there pausing, I'll bring Lazarus to life, knowing it will cost my life. And as he pauses, I imagine he, he not only sees in just a moment that Lazarus will come back, but he sees your face in that moment of deciding and surrendering. That he says, I will bring Gary to life knowing it will cost my life. He says, I will bring Marie to life, knowing it will cost my life. He says, I will bring Scotty to life, knowing it will cost my life. He says, I will bring life to Matt, knowing it will cost my life. I will bring Amanda to life, knowing it will cost my life. It was not an easy decision, but he chose it for you, for us. What is there for us to receive in this image? In this image of him so consciously choosing to bring you life through his death. The invitation is life, right? I think I, as I was writing this sermon this week, and I was thinking about life, I think I was thinking of it as us as overcomers, right? This idea of choosing an abundant life. Christ came that we would have life, life abundantly, right? John says that. But this week, in the last few weeks, our community is, has been experiencing a lot of bad news and a lot of little deaths. I don't know if you all know, but it was really powerful to, see, to have Susan choose to sing It Is Well, knowing that her father is terminally ill. And just yesterday, I received news that an uncle 
probably of mine, it probably only has weeks or months to live. Also has terminal cancer. So I think Christ is also telling us, even here I will go. In these small deaths, I will give you life. Not like so you can skip along and feel so happy. That's not always the life he promises. But it's his presence and his nearness. It makes me think of St. Ignatius's prayer, the daily examine. There's traditional terms of consolations and desolations. Consolations being the sense of at home with God. It's peace, openness, stillness, content, freedom. It is the opposite of desolations, feeling far from God, anxious, alone, confused, numb, hopeless, and heavy. That God is saying, no matter what, I've given you an opportunity to know life with me, my nearness, that peace and stillness. Even when it's the deaths that are are out of our control. So are you choosing life or death? Are you choosing to draw near to God? Or draw far. What is there for us to learn from Jesus and how he journeyed to the cross and in this story? He surrendered to death, he faced it. I think that means for us too that he gives us the example of moving towards death even the small ones, and facing it. That as he was shaking and wanting another way, he still stepped forward. We learn from Jesus, we learn from him to not hide or lay low, but to move towards it. Knowing that even in death, life can come. That even there, he can give us life. that we must too face the things that produce death in our lives and surrender them to God. We must welcome God to resurrect us and give us new life. So in closing, I want to read this last stanza again. This Easter, welcome the inner Lazarus. Let the stone unseal the stinking. Let the risen voice resurrect our deadness and give it an entrance into light. Let the risen voice resurrect our deadness to bring us back to life. Amen. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.